0: Today's episode is brought to you by my laptop fans, or it would be if they worked. Well, okay, one's actually still in perfect working condition. Keyword one out of two, but at least it stopped being noisy as a result. So, this episode's actually brought to you by my increasing levels of anxiety over getting this done, so if I, like, suddenly stop uploading for a couple months, for once it might not be due to my depression. It might just be a complete hardware failure. Now you know. Anyway, speaking of failures leading to stress, here's 2003's Mega Man Zero 2 on this episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the show where I chronicle my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. This month, we're tackling Mega Man Zero 2, built on... Basically the same core engine as Zero-One, Zero-Two takes place a year after the original game. It opens on Zero in the Wasteland all on his own, as soldiers come after him, like we saw in the epilogue of Zero-One, He tears off the cloak he was wearing, and we go straight into our opening stage. It's a run across a wasteland that is fairly similar to what Zero-One was. It gives us the opportunity to get used to our controls. We have our saber and our buster, and nothing else at the time, actually. There's lots of opportunities to, like, fall due to crumbling platforms in this stage, and many bosses that are a little bit spicier. It is worth noting that while this stage is still simple, and straightforward. It is also notably more involved than the first stage of Mega Man Zero was in terms of difficulty, and that's going to be a thing? Is that Zero 2 seems to really assume that you have played the first game, and is stepping it up as a result, right off the bat. At the end of the stage, after taking down a scorpion tank thing, Zero collapses in the middle of the desert. The one who rescues him, unexpectedly, is Sage Harpuya, the wind elemental member of X's Guardians from the previous game. We then flash over to the new Resistance base to get caught up with the plot. The Resistance has been able to stabilize itself without Copy X leaving Neo Arcadia, even having their own new, constructed, fully featured base. Their new leader is a reploid named El Pizo, who looks like a prettier X-Era Zero. He used to work for Neo Arcadia, but in the middle of all the chaos of Copy X getting taken down and the resistance fights and all that stuff, he ended up actually defecting to help the resistance and has turned out to be kind of a capable leader to them, and so they've sort of put him in charge of the military side. However, he's at a bit of odds with CL. Ciel just wants to keep Neo-Arcadia off their backs for enough time to finish her research into something that will solve the energy crisis that is driving this whole war. And right now, Neo-Arcadia is kind of a bit of a disorganized mess due to having lost their leader, so she's like, you know, we can just focus on protecting ourselves, that's all we need to do. But Elpis is sort of like, yeah, but also, once they regroup, we're going to be in trouble again. We should take them out now, and we should make this, like, decisive and end the war this way. This is where Zero's dropped into things, because all of a sudden, Zero's body is found outside of the Resistance base. He's brought in, he's repaired, we finally get to reunite with the Resistance, and begin working for them anew very specifically, working alongside El Pizo to try to open up and weaken Neo Arcadia. In a really cute touch, by the way, in the opening sequence of this game, it still is using the Zero-One menus during the opening stage, but they're like all damaged and faded. And then once we get the repairs and begin 2 proper, we actually have a completely new menu layout and look, and it's actually kind of cool like that. I, I like that touch and I wanted to point it out. And while we're here in the opening, let's look at a lot of the system changes because most of these things are immediately visible. For instance, we are given our weapons very early in the game this time. However, this time we don't have the old extending triple rod thing that we had from the previous game. Instead, we have a new tool called the chain rod. It's a hook shot. You can use it to grab and swing off of ceilings, pull yourself towards walls. You can grab shields on enemies and pull them. You can grab items out of little crevasses in the terrain and pull them towards you. It's actually a pretty neat weapon, but it is a little bit unresponsive, which sucks when you get to the spots where you need to be using it for platforming. Or like, if you want to pull something, you need to be a minimum distance away, but it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't feel the greatest to use, but it's a really neat addition to the game. Speaking of things that are revised from the previous games, cyber elves. Okay, actually, they still work largely the same as before. However, you'll remember that one of my chief concerns with cyber elves in the past was that you had to do ridiculous amounts of grinding in order to actually use any of them. The good news is that they drastically reduced the cost of Cyber Elf upgrading and activation in 2 Two. You'll actually reasonably able to upgrade and activate a few of them in a casual playthrough this time, but you might still choose not to because the ranking system is still around. Now, unfortunately, you'll still get penalized if you're using Cyber Elves, but it does feel like most of the other requirements, especially around the number of lives you use, have been loosened a little bit. Also, there's a cute new little cosmetic system attached to it that gives special titles for you based on your playstyle. For instance, my title through most of the game ended up being Lightning Edge Boy for completing the stages very fast and with a preference for the sword. Having said that, the real reason that I brought up ranking was because it now actually sort of matters. In the original Zero, having an A or S rank made the game harder by giving the bosses new attacks. In Zero, 2, this is still the case. However, every boss that you defeat while your average rank is at A or S also unlocks for you an EX skill. These are kind of, sort of, basically classic Mega Man boss weapons, or at least boss-inspired abilities. The 10 EX skills you can get are divided up among your four weapons and add various special effects to them. For instance, you can turn on special effects for your Buster's charge shot that causes each different elemental Buster to have, like, a different shot type and travel in a different way. Or, for the Saber, you can get, like, the classic Mega Man X Era Zero-style, oh, up-and-attack does an upwards rising slash, or, like, down an attack in the air does a diving attack. These are additional upgrades beyond just, like, the weapon leveling system that unfortunately is still around, but, you know. It is neat to have this. I'm not sure how I feel about the fact that you need to maintain a high rank in order to earn these things, especially because, to be honest, I barely used any of them. <laughs> the other new feature that was added to Zero 2 is forms. This one's actually kind of unusual. Basically, if you complete stages having met certain criteria in that stage, for instance, defeating enemies with a certain number of dash attacks or aerial slashes, or like reflecting a certain number of bullets with your shield boomerang in a stage, if you meet these invisible conditions, you will be granted a form after the stage. These kind of act as, like, alternate armors or skill sets for Zero each of them provides him some sort of different effect. For instance, they might change how the third slash of your Z-Saber goes, they might cause you to take a little bit less damage from things, there's one that you get after completing the game that makes you do more damage to everything, but also you take twice the damage, etc., etc., Despite looking like armors, they can actually be changed at any point just by opening up the menu, too, which is kind of neat. And the other small thing I want to get into before we hit our stages is that this game, for some reason, does not have cutscene skip on your first playthrough. In the original game, when you hit a cutscene, you could just hit start, and it would fade to black and pop back in, ready to go with the action. In Zero Two, 2 if you have to replay stages, you gotta watch all the cutscenes again. Not fond of that. Either way, Elpizo wants our help weakening Neo-Arcadia, he's pretending at this point that he's not going to turn it into an invasion, but let's just let's just kind of go along with him for a moment. We get actually a very traditional Mega Man stage select, even though it only shows four bosses at the moment. So let's get to it, starting with Highleg Oribachl at the Forest of Dysus. Something to note about this stage is that it actually immediately gives us a good sense of what has changed in Zero 2's level design philosophy from the first game. First off, just visually, the stages are generally a lot more involved and visually diverse. The first game went really ham on a very apocalyptic setting, and this one's willing to be a little bit varied. The trees out here in this forest are still technological. You can see, like, steel roots going through them and stuff, but the overall place has a very much more lively atmosphere and sense to it than what came before. But there's also a little more to the stage itself in terms of visual variety and progression as we eventually head into a ruin. There's more emphasis on level gimmicks and, like, more individualized pieces. Like, there's floating platforms that we have to use the chain rod to cross gaps, crushing spike ceilings in one section that we have to dodge, it feels more like a fully fleshed-out level, as opposed to many of the 0-1 levels, which were kind of like left-to-right runs with a bunch of enemies. 0-2 feels a lot more like the X-era does, in terms of, like, stages going in all directions and having a little bit more individual gimmicks to them. It's generally a positive, but we'll come back to that with the next stage, and I'll explain the problem. Our boss for the stage is Oribakle, he is a snake-themed robot that fights you on basically a moving set of platforms that form a snake, and over the course of the fight, in addition to lashing out with you at his arms and trying to attack you that way, he'll also regularly move around the pieces of the stage and force you to, like, climb up them, cling onto them as well so you don't fall into the giant pit below you. I mentioned pit because if you kill him at very specific points in this fight, you will just lose control and drop, and it is very possible to just fall straight to your death after delivering the finishing blow. Hate that about this fight. But it isn't terribly hard. For whatever reason, I found I could kind of just rush him down with my sword to his face and beat him up, and I'd probably win, so there's that. The next stage is Polar Cameras at the Computer Zone, so this is where I want to get into the other thing about Zero Two's level design, is that it is much more lethal than the original game's level design. There's a lot more spikes, and it is especially visible in this stage, which combines all those spike pits and like long jumps that you need to make and stuff with ice physics. There's been quite a few stages in Mega Man with ice physics physics prior to this, but oh man, these are easily my least favorite ice physics I have encountered in the series thus far. The deal with the ice physics in this stage is that just walking and jumping, you'll still be limited to your normal speed. But if you want to dash jump, and you need to dash jump. You have to start your dash and you have to jump towards the end of the dash. The dash now has like a different acceleration set of properties to it where it only hits full speed at the end. And so if you try to jump earlier into the dash, you don't get the full momentum. This is completely against how the entire Zero series has worked, and the X series before it, where, like, if you press dash and jump at the same time, you are, like, instantly going full speed, and that is the momentum that makes the Zero series and the X series so much fun to play. And having to space that out, it works once you figure it out but you absolutely have to figure it out to make this section of the game work, this stage will just kill you over and over again until you do figure it out. And even then, you're going to have a hard time, and the moment you screw up that jump once, you're just not making it across the pit. GG. This is actually probably like the hardest level in the game, but also just in general, Zero Two's level design leans a little bit more towards being lethal about things. It feels like enemies drop more health, you will probably 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 be less likely to die to enemies, but the stage itself, yeah. I've mostly been talking about the stage because Polar Cameras himself is a big polar bear who isn't really that remarkable. We've seen big slow ice bosses before. This one has kind of a cute touch of like creating ice sculptures and then bashing or throwing them at you as weapons, but for the most part he's pretty easy and he gets easier if you have the fire elemental chip. Once he starts a particular attack where he like starts trying to like punch his way towards you, you can just keep repeatedly interrupting him and trap him, and it's nothing. Next up is maybe one of the coolest stages in the game, Phoenix Magnion's Power Room. This stage introduces an enemy type that is a slow-moving, floating bomb. When you hit it, you'll knock it flying away, and it will collide with enemies or walls exploding at that point, and oftentimes blowing open new passages for you to take or busting off spikes from the walls so that you can safely climb them. The thing is with this stage is you can use that to find different routes throughout this stage. It is a surprisingly open stage as you go around to hit all these different generators. There's entire mini-bosses in here you might just not find. The Phoenix himself is actually a fairly interesting boss. He just sort of waits for you to attack, and then once you attack him, he teleports somewhere and does some sort of attack there. This makes it difficult to use charged hits against him. Unless you are using a specific control setup that allows you to hold a charge with one weapon while using another weapon to force him to teleport, you can't really use charged weapons on him, which seems a weird oversight that, like, a specific control setup has a big advantage over him. If you can do this and knock him out of the attacks that he teleports to do, then this fight is straightforward and fairly controllable. But until you learn that method, it's actually a pretty difficult fight, and if you don't have that control setup, you're actually in for, like, a fairly challenging fight. It probably took me the most time out of any boss in the game to really get good at. Finally, out of our first four stages, is Panther Flowclaws at the Neo-Arcadian Train, Surprise! It's a train stage. We've done, like, what, like, six of these in the series so far? It comes with a cute little gimmick where, when you're riding on top of the train, you'll see, like, passing by warning lights three times, and then there'll be just, like, a straight-up gate you have to jump over or to whack you in the face. And there's, like, a minigame partway through where you have to kill a bunch of mechanoids trying to steal cargo. This stage is not good, though. It's boring, it's repetitive, and almost all of the enemy spawns in this stage are ones that are, like, immediately flying towards you, So if you were trying to go through this stage quickly, you're basically going to just run straight into them. It's just an irritating stage to get through, and it's not irritating for an interesting reason. It's just not fun. Panther himself, though, is a neat boss fight because we turn the perspective of the camera sideways so that we are basically seeing, like, two trains driving next to each other, and you'll be jumping back and forth between them on this, like, variant of the Slash Beast type of boss fight. Very quick, very much focused on like dives and various projectiles that he throws and sometimes he electrifies the train he stands on. The idea of like the quick cat boss is something we've been seeing since like Man, but this is actually a really good take on it. The fight's really fun. After finishing the first four stages, Elpizo orders his units to open fire, and we head out into the battle with Neo Arcadia in order to support them, even though CL doesn't really, like, want this whole thing to be happening. It's happening, and we need to go save the Resistance soldiers. Long story short, it turns out this was a bad, bad idea, and after traveling through a very simple stage that is absolutely littered with bodies of Resistance soldiers, we rescue Elpizo from X's guardians, who are like, listen, just because is is gone and even phantom's dead he did self-destruct in the previous game the three of us are more than enough to handle the resistance you should count yourselves lucky then we have our second forced intermission stage we have to go basically board a bomber and stop it that's been headed towards resistance base this starts out with like an airship jumping section where we start to see the other problem with zero two stage design where like sometimes you're sort of just jumping blind The Zero series has a bit of a field of view problem, but I am feeling it much more in Zero Two than I was in Zero One, where just the screen real estate is like a little bit less than you would like to actually see in front of you. This stage also, honestly, is really hard and really sucks. Even once you get inside the ship, there's these switches that you have to destroy that temporarily disable electric fields you need to dash through. But, like, you have to be near perfect to pull some of these off. It's actually ridiculous how tight this segment is. And it's weird, because these are going to show back up in a later stage, and they're going to be drastically easier and more forgiving. It's much like what you expect of the quick man lasers or, like, the reputation they have where, oh, if you didn't know what was coming, you're screwed. This doesn't kill you, but there's no way you're doing this perfectly blind on your first go-through. There's literally not time. There's also a cute little segment here where we have to protect CL and we're finally really incentivized to use the shield boomerang. And afterwards, we get a boss fight with Kuagust Ankus. This is a beetle boss who's actually connected to one of the bosses from the first game. His deal is grappling dashes, whirlwinds, various disjointed projectiles. He's not anything too special, although unlike a lot of bosses in this game, his pattern of attacks is largely static and you can use that against him, as opposed to the many bosses in this game who randomly select their attacks. In the aftermath, we might have saved the resistance base, but we got kind of decimated by Neo Arcadia, and more than that, El Piso's gone missing. Apparently, when he was with Neo Arcadia, he was kind of just a generic nobody, and now that he's been placed in this position of power and has failed, it seems to have cracked his sanity a little bit. He hasn't taken it so well. But there might be more going on than that. Thus, the ELP sends us out to our next set of stages to go track down El Piso, and we'll begin with Fairy Leviathan stage. Now, I will give the stage this. This stage still uses a little bit of ice physics, but it takes a very different visual style against a moonlit backdrop, and it's also only briefly icy and doesn't require you to do any lethal jumps. In fact, minus the length of this stage, it's actually a very, very simple stage. It's almost 0-1 level, boring, left-to-right deal with the enemies as they pop out at you, and that's about it. And I'm not sure if I find that better or worse than the hellhole that was the first ice stage. Still, at the end of it, we get our rematch with Leviathan from the first game, the Water Elemental X Guardian. And in fact, by and large, when we refight these Guardians in this game, they're very similar to how they were in the original game. They have many of the same attacks, but they have a couple new ones. Leviathan can still more or less be stunned out of the majority of her attacks using charge slashes, which can make her fight a bit of a joke if you get aggressive on her. But she also has a couple moves that come out much quicker, including like a diving stab attack, that just basically ensure that when you put the pressure on her, she is turning the pressure against you as well. She's not as much of a joke, but she's still fairly easy. For the next stage, we'll head back to the Forest of Nautis for Burble Heckalot stage. This stage might look the same on the surface, but it's actually honestly an easier version of the stage. Like, the original stage had, like, a crushing ceiling segment near the end and a lot more spikes, and this one's actually fairly straightforward. Also, there's a small puzzle you can solve partway through the stage that gets you a sub-tank. I don't know if there's another sub-tank in the game, I probably should have looked this up, but you can get a sub-tank in this game without having to use a Cyber-Elf. And if you haven't used any cyber elves to raise your maximum HP, this sub-tank literally carries two entire full HP refills for you. To say that finding this thing makes the rest of the game much easier is a little bit of an understatement. As for the boss himself... Hecalot is a little frog reploid whose deal is that if he hits you with his tongue or he hits the various caterpillars his attacks sometimes knock loose from the ceiling, he will grow in size and his attack patterns actually change based on what size he is. You can knock him back down a size if you hit him between attacks when he's large, but the larger he gets, the more area his attacks cover and, like, the more prone to invulnerability he is. The fight can actually be very easy and very painless, or if he keeps jumping around and knocking down more caterpillars and stuff and just covering the floor in enemies that are surprisingly tanky for being caterpillars, it can be kind of a frustrating and difficult fight. At the end of all of these four stages, actually. We run into El Piso, who's clearly up to something. This is the stage where it matters the most. There is a side plot thing that is mostly only brought up if you actually go visit Ciel in her room and check the data logs and stuff. Apparently there were these two baby elves that were found, like baby cyber elves, that were calling out for their mother. Their mother appears to be this thing called the Dark Elf that El Piso is working to unseal from within Neo Arcadia. So, that's fun. This is the stage where his plan is overall spelled out to you. As for our remaining two stages, we need to go fight Fighting Fefnir at the factory, which has been semi-rebooted. This time it's a very linear stage and a more traditional stage with a heavy emphasis on moving parts, like falling platforms you need to jump off of, moving overheated chunks of metal that you have to avoid and dodge between. As an interesting spin on this platforming hazard, traditional as it is, if you use ice elemental charge attacks, you can actually freeze these platforms. They can still crush you up against ceilings or floors, but they won't damage you if you bump into them, which 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 means that it gives you a way to make the platforming potentially easier. Having said that, it's still actually some of the more just, like, straight-up difficult platforming, and there's no gimmick to it this time. You just really have to have learned the physics and arcs of Zero's jumps to do this. Fefner himself is mostly similar to how he was in Zero-One, but he just seems easier? He has barely any new attacks, and, like, his new big super attack was so predictable and obvious in the way it, like, measured pulses of fire from the ground that I dodged it blind completely on accident my first time. I didn't get hurt against this boss. I definitely did not have as easy of a time with Sage Harpuya at the Crystal Cave. Now, unfortunately, I can't say I like this stage. It has a neat gimmick where there's just a giant corridor of spikes, but there's invisible platforms over it. And in order to reveal those platforms, you have to hit this, like, warning light that flashes between blue and red, and it will spawn little enemies that light up the nearby crystals of the matching colors. It's not bad, but it mostly slows the stage's pace down. And of course, because it's a cave stage, we're going down underground, and there's, like, at least two places where you can just fall into spikes without having known they were there. Once again, that, like, field of view issue coming into play, but also in this case, like, one of those is just straight up a cheap shot death. As for Harpuya himself, in zero one, the deal was was that if you could keep him like pinned with charged slashes, you could keep him locked in a predictable loop. In Zero Two, however, he will start acting the same, and you will think he's going into the same loop, and then all of a sudden he pulls out different moves half the time, involving dash and slash a melee combo as opposed to his usual projectile waves. This honestly makes the Sage Harpuya fight a lot of fun. It's much more involved and much less repetitive than the original was, and it feels more like a showdown. Oh, and also we find out that yeah, has saved Zero at the beginning of the game, and we find out why here. If you lose to him, he seems completely disappointed that Zero's legend just ended. Well, in his winning dialogue, he basically talks about how much he absolutely loves the pain of getting beaten by Zero. Some absolutely masochistic tendencies going on with this dude, apparently. Um, it makes me kind of surprised that this hasn't been like an enemies-to-fanfiction inspiration. Let's put it that way. Once we're done these stages, finally, we get to track down El Pizo. He's gone a little bit insane in the pursuit of the Dark Elf, might have broken into the core of Neo Arcadia, and now we need to head into Neo Arcadia ourselves one more time to track him down, queuing basically our final series of Fortress stages. As is tradition for the fortress stages of the series, these stages are largely built up out of elements of previous stages in terms of hazards, enemies, etc., etc. There's like a couple tiny new spins, but it's mostly the same stuff. The thing that I want to shout out here is the stages themselves are easy. They're either really boring, or they're reusing things that have come in previous stages, such as, for instance, the third stage is an ice area. But also, despite being an ice area, there's only one jump now where the ice physics matter, as opposed to all of the nonsense before? There are a couple of the Neo Arcadia stages that I got A and S ranks on my first time through. Like, just going in completely blind, no memory of them, not even knowing what boss I was going to fight – I walked out with really high scores, so um, stage difficulty is not necessarily there here. For the first four stages, I do have new bosses to tell you about. The first stage ends in a fight with the Rainbow Devil Mark II, a mild variant of the, like, blob-shaped dude with the Reploid soldier head floating inside of it from the first game. He's got a couple variant attacks— but for the most part, it's the same thing we've seen before. In Neo Arcadia 2, we fight Fafnir again, but now he transforms into like the core of this slow moving tank with like detachable dragon arms. It's honestly a fairly easy fight. The attacks that this thing does are pretty much all projectile based. Either it's giant jets of flames that you'll get warned about with sounds, or it's just little puffs of flames alternating that you'll need to jump between. The only really tricky part of this fight is getting up close enough to safely hit him with your sword. In stage 3, which was the ice stage, we fight Leviathan again. But this time, she transforms into basically like the core of this giant stingray mech. This one does a whole lot more dives. The attacks feel like variants of things she has done, dropping a whole lot of like ice crystals and stuff, that can be a little bit trickier to position for, due to the fact that the entire ground is covered in ice, but it's nothing we haven't seen and dealt with before, really. Most importantly, while we can't just chain-stun her out of all of her attacks, a lot of the times, she is literally just floating there in place, and we can just wail on her. As for the fourth stage, the Temple of Wind, this is where those electric gates come back, and, like, literally the sections that you have to cross are so small, and let you reactivate new switches in the middle of them, and it's just like, wow— Why wasn't the original stage designed with this type of, like, liberty? In the end, we run into Harpuya, who hasn't transformed and gone aggro on us. In fact, he's trying to stop El Pizo from reaching the Dark Elf's chamber. However, El Pizo then basically infects him with the power of, like, this half-finished Dark Elf he currently has in the plot. And we find out that, oh, that's a thing that the Dark Elf can do and has been doing is mind-controlling things. By the way, that actually is sort of like hinted at. One of the previous stage gimmicks is there's just members of the resistance who are attacking you that are under some sort of spell that you have to not attack back and kill. You have to leave them alone and run around them. So this ability doesn't come out of nowhere. But Harpoya actually asks us to like knock some sense back into him. He actually asks us to kill him, but we don't. But he turns into a full-on warplane with missiles and everything. This fight was over really fast in one go for me, and the only attack that felt dangerous was an attack that, like, involved him sweeping across the top of the screen with, like, giant electric wrecking balls swinging under him. I don't know. It was easy. Finally, Dio Arcadia 5 is our finale stage, and this is our usual, like, small segment of a stage, and then a couple boss teleporters as we work our way back through Six members of the cast, at least. Since we've technically already re-fought the Guardians, they don't reappear here. The other six bosses in the game do. And the one surprise we get from here is that when we refight the beetle boss from the airship, he comes back with his brother from the Neo Arcadia stages in the first game in a two-on-one duel. This is a whole new boss fight. Now, it's very, very scripted. The order of attacks that they do is very specific, and you can use that against them, but it does mean, hey, this is a whole new boss fight you have to learn, and we haven't even gotten to the final boss yet. As a fun touch, these two share a health gauge, but dropping them to zero health doesn't actually end the fight. Instead, the next time they attack, they will literally do a dash attack that causes them to collide into each other and destroy each other. Once we make it through the gauntlet and finish the stage, we find Elpizo and what he has unleashed of the Dark Elf in front of the main seal on the power of the Dark Elf, a throne upon which sits the Body of X. Not Copy X, Not the soul of X that we've known and has been warning us about the Dark Elf this whole time, but the actual physical body of X from Mega Man X. It's the final seal on the Dark Elf, and El Piso proceeds to destroy it in front of our eyes in a big dramatic sequence that gets, like, multiple CG images and stuff. They at least do treat this sequence with some weight for the fact that that's like, oh, yeah, no, the X being destroyed in front of you. El Pizo allows the full power of the Dark Elf to possess him, and we get our final boss fight. Phase one is against El Piso as a human, as a swordsman. His fight is more unique than the rest of many of the swordsmen and melee fighters that we've seen throughout the series, because he leans more on a fencing style in his movements and attacks. In spite of being a melee fighter, you do actually want to stay close to him. His various projectile attacks generally are easiest to dodge when you're in close to him. And that's important because there's one attack that is like A very fast homing projectile that... I don't know what the deal is with how it hits you or what's going on with it, but, like, if it does catch you, you basically take an absolute ton of damage and get stunned for a long time, and once... I was able to escape it once it started and it didn't do anything, but I don't know what I did different. The rest of the time, it just ate huge chunks of my health. Either way, he can be flinched out of many of his attacks, but he can also enter a defensive stance in between his actions to block your attacks. So you don't want to just wail on him cluelessly, you do actually want to be like hitting him while he's doing things. He's a bit harder than Copy X was, I think. Naturally, in Phase 2, El Pizo has to go into a transformation for a giant final boss form. This one feels reminiscent of Copy X as well. Whereas Copy X had the whole, like, angelic form in the background, El Pizo also takes kind of a winged form in the back. And then he proceeds to use a whole bunch of big attacks at you like you would expect of a final boss. Now, the big thing about this is that when we fought Copy X's angel form as a final boss, you have to, like, jump on these moving platforms and jump at his head as a tiny hitbox that is oftentimes guarded by hurtboxes. It's actually fairly difficult to hit Copy X with most weapons. And the space of the battlefield is limited, and there's pits on either side that you could just get knocked into. Elpisio's second form doesn't have any of that. In fact, it's still fought in a very large arena where you have a ton of room to dodge, and that's sort of the thing: is because you have all this room, as long as you respect his attacks, you can like just run in between them to wail on him a couple times, and then get back out. And he is actually a fairly easy final boss overall alongside the fact that there's the sub-tank and stuff, I found this to be a much easier finale than the first game. Literally, I almost had more trouble with the gauntlet leading up to this than actually learning El Pizo's two forms. Having defeated El Pizo, he comes to his senses in his last moments. He talks about how he failed to protect the resistance despite all the weight put on him, and that drove him a little bit nuts. It was hard to accept his failure, and that was presumably the weakness that the Dark Elf took advantage of. But... As he prepares to die, something unexpected happens. The Dark Elf, who has floated out of his body, turns Light instead, and seems to shrink him and turn him into a Cyber Elf. Then, while the Dark Elf flickers between Dark and Light, it and Elpizo just fly away. At this point, X's spirit comes in to kind of fill us in. Apparently, the Dark Elf wasn't always known as the Dark Elf. It was actually created by X himself but ended up being stolen, corrupted, and became the centerpiece of a massive war. Prior to that, it wasn't this mind-controlling Dark Elf, which is probably a good thing, because, like, mind-controlling Reploids is sort of what the Sigma Virus does, and it would not have made sense for X to create a tool for peace that replicated the thing the virus did? Anyway, we don't know what the original intention and abilities of it were, but it presumably wasn't that. But rather, it was the person who stole it, somebody named Dr. Whale, who corrupted it and caused the entire war to start. However, these mysteries what the Dark Elf was designed for, who Dr. Whale is, why Zero feels the Dark Elf was so familiar, and, in a post credit stinger, who a mysterious, laughing, evilly figure is, and who the Omega they're addressing is well, All of those are questions that are going to have to be answered in an obviously very planned sequel, because it's time to roll the credits. So, wrapping this up is kind of tough, because there's not necessarily all that much to say. Zero Two feels mostly like what a sequel should be. There's some small new features, there's the new Chain Rod, the Farms, the EX skills. They don't necessarily add up to a huge amount of difference, but they do help the game feel like it belongs more in the Mega Man identity to have this extra customization. And, like, level reward? There's some refinements to old features like the cyber elves and stuff, though nothing majorly revolutionary and it probably needs it. The stages look a little better. The game sounds a lot better, but more on that in a minute. And the level design is more involved and evolved. The bosses are still very solid, which was already Zero One's big advantage. And, just like Zero-One really did want to put more of a story focus forward in the way it was constructed, Zero-Two kind of wants to keep up with that. It might present itself with a more traditional Mega Man stage select, but it still very much wants to be a story-centric game if that ending was any indication. They've got plans, and that's a notable change from previous entries in the franchise. Now, I will say this does come with some Mildly rough parts. I've mentioned before some difficult spots in the game and some like cheap shots due to field of view and other just struggles, but one of the things that I didn't really get into is that almost all of these hard parts of the game are in the first third of the game. This game has a reversed difficulty curve, and it's not just because you are growing more powerful, because that is limited if you're not using Cyber Elves, and I wasn't. I finished this game with an overall A rank, I couldn't use Cyber Elves. No, this game's reverse difficulty curve is literally in the fact that the levels get less lethal and less demanding. The Neo Arcadia stages are the easiest parts of the game by design, and that feels backwards. Plus, while the EX skills are a cool introduction, having to keep your rank up, like as a reward that would be fine if that didn't mean You don't touch the entire Cyber Elf system, creating two extremely competing different upgrade systems that don't feel like they're anywhere close to on even footing with each other. It's just awkward to me to have that design. Still, I don't have a problem saying that Zero Two is better than the first game. It is. Zero One was neat and it controlled really well, and it had fun boss fights, but a lot of its stage design was really uninspired, and it still needed some refinement in many of its systems, and Zero Two is a step forward. I am, however, hoping that Zero 3 continues to be another step forward after this. Sometimes after a game, the improvements are things that the developers have to come up with that aren't going to be obvious to the players. In the case of Zero Two, I feel like the things that can still be improved are pretty visible. But yeah, I like Zero Two. Anyway, let's talk about the music to end it off. I did mention the music got better, and you've probably been hearing it. Zero One, I didn't like the soundtrack to Zero One that much. It has a bad habit of just kind of droning and not really going anywhere with its music. From the moment that you start the first stage in Zero Two its OST is kind of kicking the original's butt. Like, hell, let me just cue this up here. You can hear that there's a little bit more variety in instrumentation, a little bit stronger of a medley, and a little bit more of a rock influence. Just give it a listen. Secondly, as usual, final boss tracks in the series are kind of great, and I do want to shout out the first phase of Elpizo's fight. I think you'll understand why, when you hear it, that this is, like, the one track that my brain actually remembered from Zero Two when I was a kid. There's something really good about that first early breakdown, and then just turning into this tense duel theme. Something about the rhythm of it makes it feel like it would have fit in Beautiful Joe or Devil May Cry or any of other Capcom's really good action series at the time. Finally, when I say that this game's composition was way more rock, here's the Phoenix Magnion's theme. The opening especially has drawn comparison from people to an older age of rock the kind of rock I listened to my dad play when I was growing up. And so I went looking and found some YouTube comments that all seemed to agree like, hey, wait a second, isn't the opening to this track just Led Zeppelin's Cashmere? I'm not going to be playing a clip for comparison, look it up on your own. I'm not dangling that carrot in front of the horse of copyright claims and risking this entire podcast's existence. But like, seriously, Alright, and that will do it for Mega Man Zero 2. Next month, assuming, again, that my computer doesn't spontaneously fail, but it's doing really well for having only one fan. I've been watching its temperatures this entire time. In the face of all of that, I am going to make the next game that I play one that isn't really going to strain my system very much. Or me, all that much, for that matter. I could use something that I barely need to play. So, I guess I'm going to boot up Mega Man Battle Chip Challenge. Until such time, if you liked what you've been hearing, feel free to hit me up, email podcasting for at gmail.com, visit waipf.podbean.com for the latest episodes, check your podcast provider of choice, Twitter somehow still has not self-destructed despite its best efforts, so I'm still there, at whatamipodcast4, using the number 4. Thanks for listening, I've been Garlisle, and just remember, when you defeat Polar Cameras, his death cry is a curious Bobobofa! And I know what you're thinking, and don't worry, I looked it up for you! It's actually a really obscure reference to an old Capcom PS1 game and its spin off, the name of which was Gekko no Kawaiuwasa Gaiden Bobobofa no. I'm not putting that fish. I'm not dangling that carrot in front of the fish of copyright. <laughs> Why do we keep saying fish?